Well, let's head back to Ukraine for this hour. In a video posted Tuesday night, the country's president, Vladimir Zelensky, is again pressing Western countries to do more to support his country, including levying harsher sanctions on Russia and providing more weapons. He says that hesitancy by Western nations to stand up to Moscow makes them partially responsible for the destruction in his country. And my next guest agrees that NATO should be doing more. John Herbst is the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, and he joins me now. Welcome to the show. My pleasure. We know there are face-to-face peace talks um, coming up. Uh, or what are your hopes for those achieving anything at this point? Because you've been quite skeptical about where this is headed in the short term. Um, I think these talks at this point have no real status. Uh, they are being conducted at a relatively low level. And the things, the interesting things that come out of those conversations regarding the Russian position, meaning possible flexibility, are never confirmed. In fact, they're often contradicted by Putin himself. So until we begin to hear these things from Putin himself, they they literally have no status. I guess that is the big caveat here is that whereas in other countries, negotiators go in with a certain amount of power, uh, it seems that in the Russian case, that unless it's coming from the very top, that it's not really uh, worth the paper it's printed on often. Well, that, I, I would agree with that, but I, I would add the following nuance. I mean, there have been negotiations, many negotiations, where the negotiators at, at more junior levels take positions which are the only positions we're hearing from the Russian side. In this case, we have negotiators taking positions, and then there are different things, sometimes contradictory, heard at a higher level. That's why this is so odd and why, again, I consider these negotiations best to be interesting. But again, I'm not sure they have true meaning. From a strategic point of view, if you are playing the diplomatic game here, why would Russia do this now? Why would Russia sort of not be committed at all to to any sort of negotiations at this point, considering how badly the war appears to be going for them? Well, the, I think the key is, well, how is the war going in Putin's mind? Now, I think he does understand that his troops have not performed well, but I don't think it's yet dawned on him that he is losing and, and cannot win. If that begins to dawn on him, he may settle for, um, you might say, secondary goals, not his primary goal of changing the leadership in Ukraine and having the country pretty much at his beck and call. But we don't know if he's accepted that notion. That's impossible. I think not, actually. In the interim, then, one would see that plan B appears to be to continue to shell cities in the east uh, mercilessly. Uh, This doesn't look good in the short term for Ukraine itself, you would think. Well, there's, there's no doubt that Ukraine is suffering a great deal, not just from Putin's military act, excuse me, not just, you might say, from his war aims per se, from him, but his willingness to use um, barbarous and war criminal tactics. He's essentially starving uh, Mariupol to death, even as he bombards it into oblivion. That's a war crime. He's doing something similar in Kharkiv, in Chernihiv, and in Sumy. So those are four cities. And while we've now had Russia generals talking about more limited aggressive war aims, um, just restricted to the east, he's still bombarding Ukraine, excuse me, Kiev as much as he was before, and Lviv more than before. So the military activities are not consistent with the notion of a more limited uh, Kremlin goal at the present time. I spent some time in Mariupol and Donetsk uh, eight years ago when 
the first invasion began. You've obviously spent a lot of time in Ukraine. Does the barbarism, considering these are Russian-speaking cities as well, I and mean, these weren't firmly Ukrainian nationalist cities back then at all. These were places where the government, they would often vote for Russian-speaking or at least Russian-leaning uh, leaders. Uh, does the level of barbarism that, that Russia has unleashed on these parts of Ukraine surprise you? Um, I'm not going to say it surprises me because we saw him do this in Grozny, Chechnya, and in Aleppo, Syria. But this, I don't think this was, was his preferred approach. I think when they launched this invasion, they thought in a relatively quick time, um, as, as few as three days, according to some estimates, they'd be able to take the capital, Kiev, and topple the government. I always thought that was a, uh, a pipe dream. And it's proved to be a pipe dream. Uh, but once that happened, they turned to a second way to achieve victory, which to try and batter the population into submission. That succeeded in Grozny because it was a single city in a small country or a small area. In Ukraine, it's a very large country with many cities. And they can do this to a few cities. But I'm not sure that even Russia has the ordinance, the, the bombs, to do this for all of Ukraine's cities. So this is, this is a tactic which will not succeed because the Ukrainian people are willing to fight and suffer for their freedom, for their sovereignty, for their territorial integrity. So Putin's got a big, big problem. I was going to say, Ambassador Herbst, when this was talked about, if it ever was, well, you were, I'm sure it was, um, has the way that Ukraine has reacted and been able to succeed in pushing back or at least keeping Russia from achieving many of its goals has that come as a surprise to you at all, or is that something you expected to see? Um, half and half, meaning this. I thought Putin would do better than he has in this month plus of war, but I didn't think he would come close to achieving his objective. And I always felt that Ukraine, the Ukrainian military would not be defeated. They could be diminished, but they'd retain a fighting nucleus. And with the people, they'd be ready if, if it um, turned out this was the only option to launch a partisan war. So that was always my, my view going in. But in fact, they've performed significantly better than I expected. I mean, they've, they've only lost the city of Kherson. They haven't even lost Mariupol, even though the Russians had Mariupol three quarters surrounded before this new invasion. What do you think? There's obviously been talk now, sort of a Koreification of, uh, of Ukraine, where you would see sort of a separate and divided East do you think that is is feasible? Do you think that's negotiable or, or something that's even negotiable? Or do you think it's something that, that could happen here? The first point to make is that this is not the Russian position. A general, a colonel general, so that's a three-star, spoke of this as Russian aims, but we haven't heard a peep from Putin that this, in fact, is his aim. And if you, again, if you look at the military activity since that general made that statement at the end of last week, it's continued to focus on the entire country. That's point one. Point two, Zelensky said he's willing to make some compromises. He's spoken about neutrality. He's spoken about, uh, well, he's spoken about neutrality. And, oh, excuse me, not going nuclear. Mm -hmm. But he's also said that he will defend his country's sovereignty and territorial integrity. And all decisions need to be ratified by the Ukrainian people. So, he does not envisage, and the Ukrainian people do not envisage giving up a half or a third or 15% of their country to the Russians in the wake of this war of aggression. 
So I think even that is not going to be the basis for a settlement. But that's a Ukrainian decision, not an American decision. I'm speaking with John Herbst, the Atlantic Council Eurasia Center Senior Director and former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine. After this, we'll talk more about uh, President Biden's speech in Europe over the weekend, uh, which caused some controversy uh, and what kind of lasting impact it may have. We'll be back. I'm back with John Herbst, Atlantic Council Eurasia Center Senior Director and former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine. Ambassador Herbst, I, I obviously watched... Uh, President Biden's speech over the on the last weekend, right. um, I was struck by the words simply because they were from the heart, one would think, but also because in many ways they weren't the sort of tone we would hear from some of his predecessors, for instance. Um, what did you make of, of, of his idea of saying publicly that, uh, that President Putin can't stay as, as leader of Russia and the way he put it? Look, that, that was a, ga- a gaffe. I understand why he said it. I mean, he's just, he was just there at the border. He saw the millions of Ukrainian refugees who have fled Putin's war. And he knows that the Kremlin has ordered war crimes. I refer to you know, the siege of Mariupol, which is a complete disgrace. The use of cluster bombs and vacuum bombs, which are all outlawed. Uh, so I understand why he said it. But he is the president of the United States. He needs to mind his tongue. And... By saying it, one, he upset our allies. And I think you can sometimes upset your allies, but only do it for good purpose. And this was not a good purpose. And two, he gave Putin talking points to sell to his own people, to say the problems you are facing are not because I launched this barbarous war of aggression against Ukraine, but because the United States wants to replace me as leader. So that's why it was a mistake. Particularly unfortunate because the Biden administration has been rather timid and not met the, the full demands of leadership by refusing to send weapon systems that Ukraine desperately needs to defeat Kremlin aggression, saying to the Russians would consider it escalatory. While Biden's rhetoric is, from a Russian standpoint, more provocative than sending the weapons that the Biden administration is too timid to send to Ukraine to defend itself. And so that's a serious geopolitical mistake although not as serious as his, as his refusal to properly arm the Ukrainians. Yeah, I was going to ask you for on that front. And I, and I think, uh, you know, it, it, there's obviously been the, the argument that, that Russia's position was always that, that uh, you know, America would, would, would be seeking is an enemy of theirs anyway. Uh, but, but it was certainly inflammatory. I mean, it certainly was pointed. And one wonders whether pointed comments like that right now are, are remotely helpful. No, again... Uh, I don't believe the United States has as an objective regime change in Moscow, although there are many uh, analysts who who urge that. And even if it did, it should not be saying it. And I believe, again, it was Biden just, you know, very emotional, affected by what he saw, the horrors of Moscow's barbarous war. So he said what he said. But again, uh, the, the administration has been too cautious throughout this period. And I, I just think, again, it was a gaffe and not, nothing more, not policy. I was going to ask you about that. I mean, there's been a lot of talk here in Canada about uh, the unity that we've seen, specifically from Europe, but, but a lot of talk about the unity we're seeing in NATO, uh, the quick response to the, the unified response to this, how this has scuttled uh, Vladimir Putin's plans in many ways, not facing a divided West, so to speak. 
have we done enough and what more should we be doing now to make sure that that Ukraine continues to be able to stand up for itself against what is still a much larger opponent? The West response, which really means the U.S. response, because we're the center of this, has been adequate, barely adequate. Now, compared to our policy on this war in the past, barely adequate looks pretty good, because before that it was worse. But barely adequate is not statesmanship. Uh, The Biden administration has correctly laid out the dangers of the Russian invasion, proposed a general framework for dealing with it, meaning more arms to Ukraine, big sanctions on Russia, strengthening NATO in the East, all very sound, and then been rather late, timid, and cautious in implementing this. And they have added, they have put into the, into the mix a legitimate calculation, which they have exaggerated. Um, every three seconds, it seems, some senior U.S. official is saying, we don't want to take any steps that Putin would consider escalatory. And they have used that to justify not providing Ukraine the weapons it needs to defend its cities, to defend its citizens from this Kremlin onslaught. Mariupol would not be under siege the way it is if we had provided significant anti-aircraft uh, aircraft and anti-rocket missiles, meaning the stingers and higher altitude anti-aircraft systems, and if we had provided anti-ship missiles back in December before the invasion. Odessa would not be bombarded if we had provided the same back in the day. And the administration first refused to consider it, and then when it was put on the agenda, said, well, I'm not sure we could do this because the Russians were considered escalatory, even as they were resorting to massive bombardment and butchery. What's happened is Putin's nuclear threats have deterred us from taking the steps necessary to defend our interests. There is a long history throughout the Cold War of nuclear deterrence as U.S. doctrine, and we never let the threat of nuclear war prevent us from defending our interests. If Jack Kennedy was speaking the way Biden speaks now, there'd be Russian missiles in Cuba to this day. But Kennedy knew how to worry, to prevent nuclear escalation, even as he took strong measures to defend our interests. We're only seeing half measures now to defend our interests. And that's a real failing of the administration's policy and of the West's policy. And of course, I guess it allows Vladimir Putin to continue to write the narrative to some extent. That's correct. I have about a minute left. Where do you think we're headed in the short term now? Uh, The Russians cannot win this war. I'm not even sure they can fully take the East, although the situation around Mariupol is really, really difficult right now. And if Mariupol were to fall, if you look at a map, you'd have a pretty clear shot under nominal Russian control from Luhansk in the Northeast down to Crimea in the South. But I say nominal because the Russians control the roads and some of the cities and everything. And even in the cities, they have a, a large hostile population. 10 or 15 years ago, many of the people in that part of Ukraine looked favorably on Russia. Today, only a tiny fraction do because they've seen this brutal war that Putin is waging. So there will be partisan war there. And the Ukrainian military will continue to fight. The important thing for us to continue to provide more and better weapons to Ukraine so Ukrainians can defend themselves. This is so much in our interest because if Putin wins in Ukraine, he next looks at the Baltic states. Well, he will also try to deter us with his nuclear threats. John Herbst, thank you so much for your time and your insight tonight. Thank you.